Hey everybody, it's Ed. Happy New Year. I've got two quick announcements. First, and most importantly, I want to thank two brand new podcast supporters, Reagan Nice and Sebastian Sokonos. Both Reagan and Sebastian signed up to support the podcast via Patreon, so you can go to mountainandpray.com slash support if you want to learn more about those options. Second, every other month I send out an email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. I started this list about four years ago by sending it out to about 30 people I knew, and the list has just grown and grown and grown. It's crazy but I'll be sending out my latest email on December 31st. So if you want to sign up, go to mountainandpray.com slash reading or just follow the link in the episode notes. If you sign up after the 31st, once you do, you get a confirmation email and it'll have links to every single book that I've recommended over the past four years. So sign up if you feel like it. And it probably goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. I don't send out any spam, any sales pitches, or any other typical internet funny business. It's just one email every other month full of good books, and I think you'll enjoy it. That's it for now. Hope 2020 gets off to a great start. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Peter Heller. Peter is a renowned novelist, as well as an award-winning adventure writer and former contributing editor to Outside, Men's Journal, and National Geographic Adventure. Since age 11, Peter has been committed to the craft of writing, and his lifelong love of words and stunning prose are the threads that connect all of his work, from fiction to nonfiction to poetry. His most recent novel, The River, is the culmination of Peter's decades of storytelling, The book weaves a masterful tale that combines adventure, deep friendships, wild places, chilling violence, and page-turning suspense. For those of you who subscribed to my bi-monthly book recommendations email, you may remember that I devoured this book in less than two days and absolutely loved it. Peter was born, raised, and educated on the East Coast, but headed west soon after college to paddle rivers and immerse himself in the wide-open spaces of the American West. His writing career has taken him to some of the most far-flung corners of the earth. Still, he always returns to the Rockies, where he currently splits his time between Denver and Paonia, a rural community on Colorado's western slope. The characters and landscapes of the West play prominent roles in all of Peter's novels, and his talent for capturing the beauty and complexity of people and wild places is second to none. We met up at Peter's home in Denver and had a fun, wide-ranging conversation covering everything from his early obsession with writing to his current writing process to our mutual love of surfing. We talk about his first big paddling trip to Colorado, which started his decades-long love affair with the West. We then talk about his early days as a professional writer, discussing everything from how he made it work financially to how he dealt with rejection. We dig into the specifics of his daily writing routine and why he stopped writing at 1,000 words even if he's mid-scene. We also talk about how he avoids thinking when writing novels. 
his obsession with finding the flow in both riding and outdoor pursuits, the importance of momentum, and balancing physical exuberance with his writer's life. If you enjoy Peter's books, The West, or learning about writers, you'll love this episode. And as a special bonus, I'm giving away a copy of Peter's new book, The River, via Instagram. So head over to my Instagram page, give me a follow, and be on the lookout for the giveaway. You can either search by my name, Ed Robertson, or follow the link in the podcast episode notes. The River was one of the best books I read in 2019, so I know you'll enjoy it too. Thanks again to Peter for being so generous with his time and so insightful with all of his answers. Be sure to check the episode notes for links to everything we discuss, including an image of the Winslow Homer painting that we mention about halfway through the conversation. Hope you enjoy. Maybe the easiest way to ease into it is just at the beginning. You are not a native Westerner, but you grew up kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn Heights. Yep. And uh, I went to a little school just up the street called St. Anne's. Uh-huh. And uh, I guess it was for quote-unquote gifted kids. <laughs> so I was surprised some, they made a mistake. <laughs> Their one mistake. <laughs> and, uh, but it was a great school. The teachers were some of the best I've ever had, you know, even after college and everything. They remain some of my favorites. And um, I grew up loving to write. My dad would read to me every night before I went to sleep. Yeah. And... Um, and luckily at this school in Brooklyn, they had this um, cool library and this wonderful librarian named Annie Bosworth who sort of guided our, our reading. And so it's great, actually a great place to grow up for a writer. And so I've read when I was, when I was reading articles about you and listening to interviews, so there were several different, different sources that, that, where you mentioned at 11 years old something clicked in you and you said, I wanted to be a writer. And that is that, was there something unique about 11? Well, you know, it's a great time. You know, you're so open to the world and I was a voracious reader and I was, you know, uh, my dad was reading poetry to me, you know, every night before I went to bed, he had me reading like, uh, E.E. Cummings when I was six, um, you know, which is sort of grounds for social services. (laughs) (laughs) When you think about it, they're so raunchy. Uh Uh, but I didn't understand them, but I liked the music and the language and, uh, I wanted to be a poet. And then when I was 11, I was walking around that little library and I had a crush on Annie Bosworth. Um, she was English and I would have married her just for the way she said my name. She said, Pita, are you looking for something to read? And I was like, uh-huh. And she said, well, come over here. And, you know, a great librarian, like a great bookseller who's been following your reading since, you know, you were tiny, um, knows what you're ready for. And she brought me over to the fiction shelf and pulled down this slim little volume of short stories called In Our Time by Ernest Hemingway. And they're mostly Nick Adams stories up in northern Michigan. And I took that home. And, you know, you got to picture an 11-year-old kid in New York City opening these Nick Adams stories. I mean, my heart just kind of leapt out of my chest. I was like, I want to do that. I want to, you know, hop off a freight train in, in the upper Michigan Peninsula and carry a rucksack through grass that wet my pant legs would do. And I want to camp by the big two-hearted river and make cowboy coffee and mm-hmm. not burn my tongue, you know, the way mm-hmm. Nick didn't burn his tongue and fish for those gorgeous trout. Yeah. You know, really, I'd never 
fished for trout before, but I knew I wanted to do it. Uh-huh. And then like in the end of something, that beautiful breakup story, I wanted to have a girlfriend that could row and fish like a man, you know? Yeah. And I thought that, and then break up with her because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Nick did. Uh-huh. I don't know why. Uh, she was awesome. But mostly what I wanted was to write like this guy. I mean, the writing, you know, maybe for the first time I had that experience where you read prose that's so compelling and beautiful and moving that it it doesn't go through your head. It kind of goes through your skin, Mm -hmm. you know, directly to your heart. I had that experience and I was like, I want to do that. And uh, so, you know, that kind of started this this discipline in a way. I mean, I, I really took it seriously. I, you know, I would read the dictionary and make lists of words I didn't know. uh, Well, I saw somewhere you said, you said at that point I'd started doing things that writers do so I could be a writer. I mean, what, like what the dictionary, were there other kind of disciplines you took up? Yeah. I read, well, I read that Jack London used to put words up on the wall that he, you know, that he didn't know on cards. I Uh did that. Um, I read somewhere that other great writers would copy out, you know, whole short stories or, you know, poems that they loved. And I did that. I didn't copy out whole stories, but I did paragraphs and just to get the, the rhythm of this, uh, of this writing of these people that I loved, I read voraciously, um, and practice, 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 you know, I wrote poetry, I wrote short stories and it's all I really wanted to do except, you know, be outside. I, I mean, it's interesting because I was a physically exuberant kid. So, you know, on the one hand I would, you know, read the dictionary and yeah. read Faulkner, you know, at home by myself. But on the other hand, uh, I was gregarious. You know, I had a pack of friends. I loved being outdoors, which was tough in Brooklyn. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that's a tension that's remained, you know, through my life, writing life. So your folks, everything I've seen that you've said about them, is just they, they were unbelievably supportive of your work. And of this path you've taken, which, I mean, it's, it is a, it's a tough path, no matter what, you know, any creative path, but it, you know, it's not like going and getting a very safe job somewhere at some corporation. And so were your parents, what, what did they do? What was their background? Yeah. So, um, my dad was a, uh, copywriter. That's what he did for his job. And he was, he was a madman. I mean, he was on Madison Avenue. Uh you know, vice president of a ad, big ad agency, in the, you know, on the writing side. And he wore those suits and went to, he, he said he used to go to five martini lunches and not a lot of work got done in the afternoon. But he would write comedy plays in the afternoon. He was so brilliant that, you know, he'd get a, my dad would get like a campaign assignment, you know, to do, come up with something for like Seagram 7 or, you know, Scrabble or whatever, Timex. And he'd have a week. So in the shower, you know, the next morning, he would come up with this, like, brilliant slogan, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. and have this whole campaign in his head. And then he'd spend the rest of the week coming up with, you know, no one would believe it was any good if he came up with it that fast. So he'd, he'd, like, get a couple of worse ones, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So in the meeting, he could show those and then say, now, look at this. (laughs) Uh, But the rest of the week, he would just write plays, you know. He was a real writer, and he read and read and read. He was extremely erudite. And so he loved, he would help me, you know, when I was at home writing stories, he would come out, look over my shoulder and say, now, look, um, not so many long sentences in a row. Let's, you know, get a little rhythm. Let's balance the long sentences and the short sentences, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then my mom was, you know, she was a private eye. 
and uh, also uh, an incredible artist. And she was sort of a she she would make art out of bones and found objects, and uh, it was a lot of it was very. Um, kind of dark like she she made voodoo altars and and you know stuff out of human skulls and once a once a window washer came into her studio (laughs) and he saw all these voodoo altars and stuff and and the next day he came back with a skull in a bucket human skull oh yeah and he said mrs hella don't ask (laughs) and so she covered it with gold leaf and put it on this pedestal and and ornamented it it sat there you know until a few years ago and a lot of celine came from yeah 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 she is as written i mean i just wrote the book about my mom all the family history and everything but anyway so she was an artist and she was such a great mother to have for a writer because you know when i started i had to make a living so i started writing for magazines and you know i'd say mom you know i've got a cover story for outside you know and and she's the type of mother that would say uh and and how's the poetry going that's cool. You know, which was really cool. And, cool. you know, so those guys encouraged me that way. But I, but I have to say, you know, this thing about writing being a tough road. Um, and I think my, my wife is an actor and it's tough. And I have other friends that are painters and it's tough. And, but for me, you know, I was so sort of romantic. You know, I grew mm-hmm. up reading, reading On the Road. I grew up reading... Uh, you know, all those Nick Adams stories. And frankly, I spent years like living out of the back of my truck with an old Remington typewriter in the back and a fishing rod and a kayak on the roof. And I, I couldn't think of anything happier making than just driving around in my truck, sleeping in the back, um, you know, teaching kayaking at NOC down in North Carolina, um, you know, in the mountains, Uh Uh, putting the you know my a chair or stool out on the, and on my tailgate with a typewriter. I mean, I just thought you know what could be better than this? You know, if, if I'm making you know Jack, mm-hmm. big whoop. You know, I'm, I'm I'm the happiest guy in the world. And I was writing poems. I was writing short stories. I didn't need a you know to, or a house or you know any of that. A, a fancy car. And uh, so I don't know. There's something about. You know, and, and being an outdoorsman, I didn't mind, you know, camping. I, I could have just camped all year. Who cares? Sure. That's pretty, that's really cool. So when you were a kid, did you travel out west much? Did y'all do family vacations out this no, way? No, was... I grew up in the summer. So I would go to uh, the Adirondacks um, for like seven weeks in the summer. There was this cool camp I would go to where I learned to canoe and climb and all that. And, um, and then I would come back and spend like a few weeks at Fisher's Island, uh, off the, you know, in the Long Island Sound, which was, you know, sort of DuPont's and Whitney's and my grandmother, (laughs) which was a weird contrast, Uh but I liked it because there was waves, you know, and rocks and I'd go snort spear fishing and I'd, you know, I'd go body surfing and I didn't care about the country club, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I was always like that, you know, I just wanted to be out with the, with the birds and the fish and the animal, the bear. So what drew you out this way after you went to college Northeast and when when did you end up here? Well, I went to Dartmouth and, uh, two of my, uh, really good friends, um, one was from the mountains of Colorado. He was a ski jumper and um, a great kayaker. And another was, um, uh, his name's Landis Arnold, and he was, he was in Sarajevo ski jumping. Oh, um, but, but his family was up in Tabernash, which is up by Winter Park. 
and his dad was the doctor at the um he was a he was a 10th mountain division guy mm-hmm. and he was a the doctor at the at winter park ski area so a real mountain doctor so landis came from you know this um you know, sort of real mountain background, and he was a really good kayaker. And this other guy, Sasha Steinway, who lives right down the street, um, was a was a was a great big water kayaker. And they both um, encouraged me to get in a boat and try it. And I did. And then that first summer, I was just, I think my sophomore summer, they said, "Hey, we're going out to Colorado, and um, we're gonna we're gonna paddle. You you better come." And so they dragged me out here, and it was like a high water year. 1980, 80, I think, uh-huh. uh, they dragged me out over to the Arkansas Valley, um, put me on the numbers, which are class four, which are class five at big water. And it was big water. And I just swam every day And my head, you know, I would roll, I would try to roll. It would take me seven attempts to roll the kayak and my head would hit, be hitting the bottom <laughs> and, you know, but I hung in there and learned to paddle with these guys. And I fell so in love with, I mean, I, I you know, I grew up when I learned to kayak, I was learning in New Hampshire where, you know, the high water is early April and there's ice and water mm-hmm. and snow on the bank and the water's freezing and it might be raining. And you know, I was out here and it was like 90 degree heat. Your stuff would dry like oh, in yeah. five minutes. It was big water. There were like herds of elk, you know, there were snow capped mountains. I just couldn't believe it. I was like pinching myself. I was like, really? And I like, there was no way I was not going to come back here after school. And so here I, here I am. <laughs> that, was my, that was my first taste of the West. In high school, they sent me to the to um, Buena Vista for some kind of leadership Come retreat. Come on. Yeah, and that was my first taste. And it, that place always holds a special place in my heart. And it wasn't hardcore. You know, we were doing, you know, typical, like a rafting trip and some yeah. rock climbing. But that place has always been super special just because it was my first taste. Yep, and that's, for the listeners, that's the same valley. I mean, that's. That's where the numbers are, right yeah, by Buena right Vista, and uh, it's it's beautiful. That's really cool. And yeah. so, you get out of college and decide you're going to make a go of it as a writer. What, how did what did that look like? Well, I went to L.A. first. Okay, uh, my best friend from high school is Carlton Cuse, and he was the showrunner and producer of Lost. Oh, okay. And he, he's the creator and, and showrunner for Jack Ryan, you know, the big oh, show yeah, on Amazon yeah. now. Amazon. And he's done, <clears throat> excuse me, he's got a bunch of shows. Um, I always say just for fun, you know, he didn't seem that smart in high school, go figure. <laughs> but he, he really was. And uh, he was, after, he went to a different college than I did. And uh, when he got out, he went to L.A. He graduated a year earlier and he went out to L.A. and worked for a producer and said, hey, Pete, you know, come out here. Let's write a screenplay and let's get our start in L.A. And I went out for a year, and we wrote a screenplay, and it was fun, and it turned into some some fun. Uh, but I hated L.A. What about it? Just the oh, congestion? God, it was just no community, you yeah. know? And by then, you know, uh, I had had a taste of Colorado. I really liked being in the mountains. I wasn't a surfer yet. God, if I'd have been a surfer, I probably would have lived, you know, on the beach somewhere, and that sure. would have been fine. But uh and it was, you know, I thought it was a lonely place. You know, people were, it was so fractured in so many ways. I, I think it's better now. Um, the only thing I liked about it is I lived in Beechwood Canyon and I would run up the canyon and every afternoon into the, like all the brush and there were red tails up there and coyotes under the Hollywood sign, you know? Uh-huh, yeah. And I'd run those trails and I, I liked that, but I hated LA. So, uh, after a year of that, I went and worked, um, 
in North Carolina for a year at the Nanahale Outdoor Center, teaching kayaking and yep. working in a paddle shop. And loved that too. And then Landis called and said, "Hey, I'm living in Boulder. I got a house. I got a cheap room to rent. Why don't you come out here and we'll we'll kayak and you can get a job." And so I got a job delivering pizza nice. <laughs> nice. <That> <laughs> and teaching kayaking and other stuff too. But you know, you do everything you can uh, to support yourself. But I was spending a lot of my day writing poems, um, trying to write stories for Esquire, and I even got rejected. I think I got a rejection from Guns and Ammo. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so, or hunting. I think I wrote a piece about Landis and I went up and got our first elk up, up by Devil's Thumb up here. And um, I wrote a story about that and they rejected it. They said, there's not, where's your pictures? <laughs> does, that, does that rejection, you seem so happy-go-lucky and just, you know, you're obviously very focused, but upbeat and optimistic. Did that rejection ever get to you after a while? Or did were you enjoying the process so much? It was kind no, of like oh. I, no, I didn't expect. You know, I had an English teacher in in high school who said, you know, he was trying to be a writer, and he said, I have a whole shoebox full of rejections, mm-hmm. and I sort of treasure them because they just remind yeah. me to you know just keep at it, and mm-hmm. you know, I always thought that was good. That was good, and and the other thing was. Um, my girlfriend at the time, Lisa Jones, who's still one of my best friends, she lives up up by Boulder. And I think I was 20, I forget how old I was, I was 26 or something. And she gave me a galvanized trash can for my birthday. And she said, fill it up. Mm-hmm. And this was sort of back when you still had hard copies of stuff. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. You could crumple it up uh-huh, throw and it in there. make a two-pointer or a three-pointer. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I always thought, you know, I just knew it was going to be a tough road. I mean, everything I'd, you know, read and heard about the biographies of writers, I just knew it was tough. You know, everybody but Keats, yeah. <laughs> yeah. who died at 26, exactly. and, you know, was the greatest poet ever. <laughs> <laughs> Go out on top. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, so I knew it was going to be hard. I, you know, I tried Esquire, I remember, sent them a couple of things, and I got really nice notes back. I thought that was cool at, you know, 24 to get mm-hmm. an, uh, a note from an editor at Esquire. Even The New Yorker, I sent them a short story, and I remember Charles McGrath wrote me a whole-page note That's you know, cool. saying, you know, you, you really got something, you know, keep at it. And uh, so I did. That is that's really cool. And so what was the first story that you put in and got published, and you were like, all right, it was, a, it was, a, okay, so I was like 28, uh, I was back, this girlfriend Lisa was working as a reporter in the Upper Valley between New Hampshire and Vermont, Okay, uh, and I got a job back at Dartmouth College, where I had gone to college, at the Canoe Club, they have a really established, you know, 100-year-old, uh, very, um, just a great, great sort of... Um, nursery for uh great paddlers Mm -hmm. um and expeditioners and uh i got a job running the canoe club for a year which was so neat and so i would um you know i'd write during the day and then in the afternoon when the kids were done with their classes i would go teach these kids to kayak Mm -hmm. and take them on you know river trips and i got that like a cadre of like it was really neat i was very proud very proud of it i got like 12 students who had never been in a kayak and in one year i had them confidently running class four wow and uh you know we was rigorous and um i I loved it i loved it i loved it um 
But during that time, I, I wrote, I sat down and in about two hours, I wrote a little short story that was very lyrical and I sent it cold. I just folded it up and into an envelope, believe it or not, put a stamp, a real stamp on it uh-huh. and put it in the mailbox. And 11 days later, the uh, fiction editor from Harper's called said, we want to publish this. Nice. Uh, so that was my first thing. And that was a calling card then when um, I realized I, I wanted to start writing for magazines. So the, I've read and what you just said now, and then I've read that, that sometimes you're writing can just come out of you. Like, I mean, you'll, you'll just sit down and, and like I read somewhere that when you wrote, I guess it was dog stars. It, it said it came out in a white heat. Like it, you just cranked it out and it seemed, and then I've heard you talk about how you, especially with your fiction, you don't think you just, if you can get kind of get in the zone and not think. So can you talk about that process of just kind of letting it rip versus being inside your head, trying to figure it all out ahead of time? Well, it's interesting. You know, I got diverted for like 20 years, you know, (laughs) uh, writing for magazines. Mm -hmm. And it was the coolest sort of, I mean, it was a wonderful diversion. So joyful because like I said, I'm, you know, I'm physically exuberant. I love to go on expeditions. I got to be sent all over the world uh, kayaking, you know, in the Pamirs and, you know, South America and the Caucasus and in the Himalayas. And, um, Sort of like about 2010, 2011, I'd been doing it for 25 years and, or more. And, um, and I just thought, you know, it's time. Uh, I had followed one editor from magazine to magazine, men, you know, men, outside to Men's Journal, uh-huh. National Geographic Adventure, to Business Week. And they were paying me $3 a word, which at that time I thought was like amazing. Mm-hmm. I had money saved up and I thought, you know, I could sit down for like nine months, I think, without taking a story and write the novel that I've always wanted to write since I walked around that library with, with Annie Bosworth and read it in our time. And so I went to the coffee shop and I sat down and I thought, you know, I don't want to outline or plot mm-hmm. because all my nonfiction that I've been writing for the past two decades I always knew what was going to happen next because sure. it happened. And I always knew what the ending was going to be. And would you outline it all for the fiction stories? Like structure no, it I would just, but you just knew it. I started head. in, but I would have to follow. I mean, it was usually I was writing about expeditions or, uh-huh. you know, environmental campaigns. And so they had a beginning and an ending. So I would just, you know, yeah. it was all laid out for me. Sure. And I thought, you know, I don't want to be one of those guys who plots. I'd read John Gardner's book about writing novels and his sort of idea was to make an outline and just keep filling it in with smaller and smaller A's, B's and C's Mm -hmm. in numbers. And you'd have a novel. And I thought, geez, you know, if I want to do that, I could be a lawyer. (laughs) Engineer. You know, yeah, Yeah. right? You know, so, but what I realized is that what I loved about paddling and running rivers and, you know, especially in, you know, really wild places is that, if you run a river and you've never been on it or it's never been described, um, you come around a bend, you paddle around a bend in a canyon, and you don't know what's going to have mm-hmm. any idea what's going to be there. Mm-hmm. Could be a waterfall, could be a cougar drinking, could be a backlit flight of you know mayflies, hatch of mayflies. I just love that. I, I love the thrill, and I wanted that. I, it occurred to me that writing fiction, it, you know, could be like running rivers. 
that a narrative is like a river. You know, you put on, you you follow the narrative current into territory that you've never been in. Mm -hmm. How cool is that? Very cool. If you if you don't think about it and plot it. So I called Carlton, my buddy, and I said, Carlton, hey man, you you work with all these novelists making your TV shows and movies. Have you ever met anyone who just sits down and starts with a first line and lets it rip and has no clue? He, he didn't even hesitate. He said, oh, yeah. He said, Pedroni, I, I, I work with Stephen King. He um, often starts with a first line. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, it's like a voice. Mm-hmm. And the voice is a character. The character's in a place. Yep. And there's a situation because there's always a situation. Mm-hmm. And he writes into the story. And then he said something that really surprised me. He said, I work with Elmore Leonard. And he... Uh, often start, you know, these tightly plotted, seems like, you know, uh, crime stories in South Florida. And he said, you know, this guy often t- starts with a, some, you know, some character just talking. He's probably in a strip bar because it's Elmer yeah, Leonard, yeah, you know, in yeah. South Miami. Uh-huh. Um, but it gave me permission, you know, and I thought, okay, the fiction police are not going to bust down the door if I just sure. start. And I thought, how fun. And I sat down at the table in my coffee shop and I spent a month writing a short, writing a novel about a 17 year old girl who could fly at night, mm-hmm. you know, like Superman. Mm-hmm. And I was starting to feel out of my depth. It just didn't have that knock, that hard wood knock of, of something really true and good. Um, and I realized, you know, I don't have kids. I don't know what 17 year olds think about, you know, I, I, I know one thing they think about cause I remember being 17, but it was, <laughs> you know, it wasn't enough. And I don't really know how to fly, you know, like Superman. And there was just a lot. So I read it to my friend, Helen, who's part of this little writer's group I'm in here in Denver. And she said, you know, I read like 45 minutes in her kitchen. She said, you know, it's great you're writing fiction. And, uh, you know, your sentences are so good. Mm -hmm. And I knew exactly what that meant. It's (laughs) like, you got spinach in your teeth, you know, and I'm your friend and I'm going to tell you. Uh That's valuable. It's very good. You got to love these people that stand up for you. And take the risk. And so I went back, and the next day, I think, I sat down in my little coffee shop, same one where I w- had met my wife, you know, years before. And I, I closed my eyes, and I just thought, don't think, just listen. And I, I wrote, I keep the beast running, I keep the low lead on tap, I foresee attacks. A few lines later, my name is Hig. One name, Big Hig, if you need another. If I ever woke up crying in the middle of a dream, and I'm not saying I did, it's because the trout are gone, every one. And as soon as I wrote that and heard that, I just thought, you know, I'm listening. You know, keep talking. And then it was as if this guy was on the other side of a campfire on an October night with the wind blowing the flames around. And he was telling me what had happened to him a few years before. And I would just go in every morning and I would just say to myself, don't think, don't think, just listen. Mm-hmm. And it was the most thrilling experience I'd ever had, hands down. And seven months later, I kept myself to, I have this method where I only write a thousand words. I don't let myself run on. Oh, really? Even only even when that, I'm excited. Not only a thousand, but you will not go more than that? Yeah. So I'll talk about method now because um, that's that's what I did in that first novel. I, I had read that Graham Greene wrote 500 words every day. Mm-hmm. And he was so assiduous about it that he would keep a subtotal in the margin of his notebook. And at word 500, he'd stop. Stop. 
So it was the middle of a sentence in the middle of dialogue in, the, in a love scene, and he'd stop. Can you imagine the discipline? And then I realized when I read that, what he was doing was always stopping in the middle. If you set a word, an uh, arbitrary word count, and stick to it, so you're going to be in the middle of something. Yes. So I thought, well, what can I you know, write with good energy every day? Probably a thousand words. So I started writing a thousand words every day. I'd never let myself write less than that. But I would go on after the thousand words. And after you do it for a while, you know when that is. I would let myself go on a little farther until I was in the middle of a scene mm. or, some, or something that was exciting. And you'd leave it there. And I'd stop there. So it was, you know, 1,065 words. And my relationship with my writing started to change right away because what I would always do before and what all my writer friends would do, whatever quota they had for hours or words, if they got excited, they would write through the scene. Mm. And if you think about it, and then go, you go, wow, that was great, and go on with the rest of their day. But if you think about that, that's always a transition. You know, you're always going to be stopping at a double return, white space. And you might as well start the book every morning yeah, or evening, get, you know, and get the rock rolling up the hill. And I, you know, so doing this method, and that's what I did. And it was so hard to, you know, get haul your ass back into the chair, you know. And so doing this, not only was my brain doing all this work on something that, you know, I could have written through. I could have written 3,000 words. Sure. I was so excited about this scene. But my mind would do all this work. So when I came back to it, it was probably better than if I'd have written it before. But I had garnered all, I'd, I'd like stored up all this pent up energy. And so I couldn't wait to jump out of bed. I mean, literally, you know, the last few years writing fiction, I go to bed at night and I just like, why can't I just, why can't it just be daylight and I can make my cup of coffee and cool. get at it? You know, I don't, I don't want to lie there for eight hours. You, you ever know? read Life Work by Donald Hall? Uh, I love Donald Hall, but I never did. He's talking about his writing, and he said the exact same thing, that he wake up at 3 in the morning, and he is so excited, but he forces himself to go back to sleep because he knows it, it'll wreck his day if he starts at 3 right. a.m. Yep. But it's the exact same thing. Yep, that's how I feel. And and it's since I started that method, you know, where it's I'm not facing white space. I'm coming back to something I stopped in the middle. I've done a lot of unconscious work at night. The way we do, remember when we studied for finals, you know, you know how much work you do at night? Yep. When you go to, so um, it's a great method. And if you think about it, if you write a thousand words a day, and I don't ever, you know, I don't edit as I go. I just, just go. basically, you know, like figuratively let the pen flow, you know. And um, if you do that every morning, uh, think about it. If a, if a novel is a hundred thousand words, I mean, in four months, you've got a draft. Mm -hmm. And you can, you know, you can kick it into shape. You know, when you think about the, the river analogy, you know, the river is there. And so one way or another, you're going to go down it. But when you think about your process of just kind of letting it go, you know, there are all these different environmental factors with the coffee shop you're in, a conversation you had the day before that are influencing your brain one way or another. Do you feel like the like dog stars, for example, could that have gone in a completely di could that book's plot could have gone in a completely different direction if environmental factors had been different, or 
was it going to go that was it going to lay out that way one way or one way or another does that make sense i mean yeah yeah i i mean that's an interesting question i mean it's such a really existential question you know it's like uh because I, I always wonder about that I and mean, i don't write anything other than you know I'll, I'll write different things mostly for for work but i always wonder just about the wording and the way i structure things if i had done this yesterday would it be completely different just because i don't I don't know that my brain would be consistently putting this stuff out and mine's not creative. So I feel like with creative, it could go in so many directions. Yeah, maybe, maybe it could, but I, the interesting thing is, is that, um, you know, when I'm in the flow and I, I, I get in the, you know, when I sit down, I, I put headphones on with rain, the sound of rain. Mm-hmm. And so I don't hear the, you know, the friends talking or the real estate deal at the next table or whatever. I put the brim of the hat down so it hits the, you know, in, in my view, it hits the top of the laptop and I'm in this zone, you know, and um, I get transported, you know, when I, you know, a few minutes in, I start writing, I get transported, I'm kind of in a flow and there's a sense of inevitability, you know, it's like, it's interesting, like, you know, I send a send I finish I send it in to an editor the editor says well I think maybe we should move the the ending you know from here to here and I go what do you mean um that's not the way it happened uh. there's like this there's this sense of inevitability about it like you uh, know when I'm when I'm connected to the writing and I'm and I'm going along there's a, almost a sense that it can't be any other way mm. You know that the the, the 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 characters, you know the weather, the the histories of the of the actors. You know, it, it, and so it, I, it's not that I believe in fate. <laughs> I don't know what I feel about fate. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe character is fate, and so you know I feel like the the engines of the characters and the and the, and the engine of the story have they have its own. It has its own soul and spirit, and and it's going to run. And I just get out of the way. Yeah. So a, a lot of, well, I'd say almost, you know, all your fiction, it has so much of um, parts of your real life. You know, we were talking before we started recording about some of the folks in, in Paonia that you hang out with and how they make a different appearances in the books. And there was one part in The Painter, and I was just curious about this, where, you know, he, um, Stegner, sees the Winslow Homer painting, and that means so much to him. Does that particular painting have meaning to you? Because I'm obsessed. There's a different Winslow Homer painting that I'm completely Which obsessed with. Which one is it? In the Gulf Stream or the Gulf Stream. I've got it. Yeah. It but it's similar to the one that you mentioned. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love that. Man, I have you it. You can see the squall up in the corner. Well, you can see the squall and then you can see the ship off in the distance where he you know, could possibly save him. I could talk all day about why that picture <laughs> means sharp. so much to him. Uh, yeah. But I was wondering if, if that particular... That's a very selfish question just for me. But if that particular one's a Homer. Yeah, of course. I mean, anything I put in the novel, you know, it's crazy. Uh, It's almost like the thing, you know, as you go, I feel like I go through my life now and I'm like a baleen whale, you know, just sort of sifting all this krill. And, uh, um, you know, the stuff that I end up, you know, that ends up um, impacting me that, you know, that, that strikes me, that has real meaning, you know, it, it always somehow ends up in the novels. Mm-hmm. I don't mean it to, but it just wings in out of the universe. My first assignment, you know, when I had to, I told you I had to make a living, you know, so I started writing for magazines. 
Um, because then I was living in town and I had a room and I had to pay rent. Risky yeah. <laughs> <Pesky> rent. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I wasn't living out of my truck anymore. But um, so I started writing for Outside and my first assignment, you know, uh, a guy died in my arms, you know, on an expedition. And the next two days later, we went down to the same river, which had been in flood. You know, the Himalayas were storming, and we could see it, and the river had turned really raucous on this training run, and there had been this awful accident. And um, this man um, died in my arms, and it was um, super, you know, traumatizing. I can't imagine. um, Two days later, we assembled down by the river, and it was now quieted down, and I pulled out a book of poetry that i had tang dynasty chinese poetry i thought you know my first assignment i'll bring a book of poems to the you know to get the spirit of the place i've done it many times since bought a brought a book of poetry and i read this poem uh from 760 a.d western china wow (laughs) and uh so 27 years later, I'm finishing the dog stars in the coffee shop, and I'm coming to the last page, and Hig, my hero, is out under the stars, and he's making up these constellations. It's a post-apocalyptic story, and he says, and my favorite, and he's missing his dog, and he says, and my favorite poem is by Li Shang Yin, written in the ninth century, I guess, he says. Hmm. Uh, and it's called, When Will I Be Home? And it was the same poem that I had read for David by the river 27 years before on that expedition. It had, I didn't even know that I knew it or that I I hadn't thought about it and it winged in out of the ether. And so that's the magic to me of writing fiction, you know, that, that I don't find in nonfiction, which is the universe just sends in these flights of Mm -hmm. strange birds, these gifts and they land on your table, and you can't even believe that they exist. Yeah. <laughs> and you put them in the book. I would think that, that there are a lot of people that have these thoughts like that, or they, these ideas come to them, but then they get either self-conscious or they're worried, and they think, oh, well, I can't, that won't work, or people might reject that or whatever. And it, did it? do you think your years of writing in the lead-up before you switched over to fiction full-time kind of gave you this confidence, like, all right, I know what I'm doing. I can be happy proud about this it's like you talked about with your buddy who said kind of gave you the permission to start with one line Mm -hmm. is that a big part how how does confidence play into because you're putting yourself out there especially the way you do it i think um i think all the magazine work gave me a real um sense of craft Mm -hmm. and a real feeling like like i remember in my you know my first couple of assignments for outside i remember my editor saying you know could you could you just draw this sketch this character a little bit you know make him come alive you know fast you know right away <laughs> like you know the way um, i don't know Krakauer does it or somebody like that you know who is writing at the time mm-hmm. and i was like gee i don't know let me try you know but it gave me something to work on. i was like okay how can i in just a few sentences evoke this you know the, the spirit of this person mm-hmm. um and so i came to writing fiction feeling like um feeling like you know i'm going to Go to the hook in the shop. I'm going to put on my apron. I'm going to, you know, sharpen my chisels, and I'm going to go to. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to. I'm going to make the pieces and the joints, and I'm going to work at it today. And uh, it is sort of a sense of humility, like this is a craft. You know, we're not going to sit around and wait to get inspired. You know, Mm -hmm. 
And um, we're also going to trust in the universe that, you know, we've written lots and lots of stories, hundreds of stories, and we're going to trust in the universe that it's sort of like, I'll tell you what it's like. When, <laughs> this is cool. The best analogy is a horse. Um, when I first got to Colorado uh, and moved to Paonia out on the West Slope, I had read all these Louis L'Amour books, all those, you know, pulp westerns. Sure. And all I wanted to do was drift the high country like Telsacket or mm-hmm. Hondo. And so I bought a horse and I borrowed a horse and I rode to Wyoming. Yeah, I read that you know? somewhere. I wanted to ask yeah. you about that. And I just had a pack horse and uh, I brought a friend who, you know, all the ranchers said, you know, we wouldn't do this alone, you know? Uh, so I, at the very last minute, I got a, a Knowles instructor, a climbing instructor to ride this green broke mare in the back of the string, you know? And, uh, we rode, I had a pack horse and we rode, um, you know, for a month up through the mountains and it was just this beautiful experience. Yeah. I just friggin' loved it. You know, we camped under the little, same little blue chart that covered the packs on the pack horse. And we, I didn't have a stove or anything. We made a fire every night, every morning oh, and, cool. uh, I'd wake up at, very first light and i'd put the horses on hobbles and they'd graze and dandy would come over and like by the fire and nudge my shoulder and sniff my coffee and it was just this beautiful you know we'd fish it was this beautiful trip but i got lost a few times and dandy the guy i was riding was a 20 year old outfitting horse and he'd been hunting in these mountains all his life and when i got lost i would just give him his head you know, I just let the reins loose and, you know, and he would just find his way back to the trail. And it was amazing. And after 10 hours of riding, he, if he saw a crossbar in the trees for, you know, f- dressing deer in a fire pit, he'd just pull in. <laughs> he'd say, it's time. This is where we're going to be. Yeah. So he's a smart guy. And uh, so I think of riding like, it's sort of like you, you jump up on the horse and he's a mountain horse, and that's your craft that you've worked at and worked at and worked at and worked at, and you let him run. And But every once in a while, because he's a horse, and he has a brain the size of a walnut or whatever a horse's brain is, yeah. <laughs> he wants to go down in that gully. Mm-hmm. And so you just got to nudge him back over. You know, good idea, but maybe not. Let's go this way. And then you give him, his, give him free reign again. So there's a you know, little bit, every once in a while, you pull back that authorial control because you can feel the, you're going up a cul-de-sac, you know, you can feel the energy dropping, mm-hmm. you know, and so you make this a sort of more deliberate decision, you know, okay, I'm going to just nudge it back over this way. We'll sure. go this way. And then you let it run and just let it run. You know, Trust the, it. just get out of the way. It's such a thrill. It is like paddling. It is the closest thing I can think of to pulling. You know, you see that horizon line of the rapid and you see the mm-hmm. spray coming up sure. behind it and hear the roar. And you're like, Fuck, you know, I'm going to I'm going over that. <laughs> and you 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 peel out of the eddy and you get on the current and your boat turns and the current starts to take you and you sit up, mm-hmm. you splash your face, you get your grip on the paddle and you start, you know, you get the rhythm of the strokes and you start looking downstream and it's just that same feeling writing, you know, it's like, okay, the current is taking me, the story's taking me and I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go with it and I'm going to give it my best. And it's a thrill. That's really, I love the way you described that. One more question about process. Um, I read that when you finished Dog Stars, you pretty much immediately started doing the painter. And have you continued that process of just always going and what what drives that i mean obviously you love you love what you do that's clear right, but right, is there right. any anything else behind it i mean just to yeah oh well yeah i mean i didn't let's see my first novel got published when i was like 52 or something and uh you know i feel like life is short you know i'm finally doing what i wanted to do since i was 11 right <laughs> yeah. you know it's like why slow down you know i want to go 100 miles an hour yeah 
and all cylinders. And so there's that. And I also really believe in momentum. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just like, you know, I really treat it like an athletic. You know, I would... I trained, you know, as a kayaker for years and um, took it seriously and learned about having good sleep and, um, you know, eating well and, um, you know, getting exercise. So I, I try and live my life so that I bring the best of myself to those few hours in the morning mm-hmm. when I'm working. Morning is always the time. Yeah, yeah. I like getting up. I like staying close to my dreams. I like having a couple of cups of coffee and then, you know, getting at it. And, um, so, so I feel like it, it really is an athletic endeavor almost. And it is, feels very physical. You sort of feel after a writing session, like it's been a workout. And so I know from, you know, training in the past that, um, you know, when you stop paddling or running for a week or two, you really feel it yeah. and you get back to it. You Definitely. know, you, there's, there's a hitch. You've lost a hit. And, and so I really believe in that. So, you know, I finish a novel, send it off, you know, take a couple of days, want to maybe go fishing or whatever. And, uh, and then come back to the, to the, to it. Well, it seems like all of your hobbies that I know about, they're all kind of similar to writing in that, you know, there is, there, there is a process and there's this kind of ultimate goal of getting in the zone, you know, fishing. I feel like with fishing, you can really get in the zone surfing. Obviously there's nothing, there's no faster way to get in the zone than riding a wave. As far as I'm concerned, I mean, different world flying, you fly. And I mean, do you, are you a, a zone junkie always trying to, <laughs> trying to get in that zone? Cause I, I am, I love forgetting that I'm a human being, Mm -hmm. you know, to me, you know, to me getting connected, especially, so I love everything I love to do except for the writing where I can transport myself there is out outside, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I just love, you know, getting connected to a wild place, whether it's, you know, it's a, it's a river mouth in Mexico, you know, that's undeveloped, just the, the bay and the river mouth and the Sierra and the turtles popping their heads up and the frigate birds and the, and the, you know, the boobies and diving and, um, or it's a mountain Creek and, you know, it's getting late in the evening and the sun's, you know, down on the coming down on the ridge and the Creek's starting to turn to sort of oil and mercury and you're just casting and waiting and smelling the willows and listening for, you know, maybe the knock of an elk, you know, and, and, you know, all of that, I forget myself, you know, I just sort of like become absorbed in the place and in the wildness and in all the other beings that are out there. And it's just so, you know, you get so small and it's so, it's not even humbling because there's nothing to be humble. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, because you lose yourself, you forget your name, you kind of forget you're a person, you're just in the flow of what you're doing and you're so connected and to me, you know, it's like, I don't know how people feel in church, you know, when they feel connected to God, but I, I know that I feel connected to, you know, something much bigger than me. And I love it. I just love it. And that's the feeling I get when I'm in the flow writing. Have you ever done any mindfulness training, meditation? Do you do anything like that? I have done some. Yeah, because it seems like fun. a lot of what you're, I mean, it, you're kind of accomplishing the same thing through yeah. these activities. Yeah. You know, and it's, in some ways, it's... It's not easier, but, you know, just sitting there trying not to think, that's a hard way to, to not think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> riding, riding, riding away is a, a lot easier. Right. Um, 
So I want to talk a little briefly about Paonia because I know that's a huge part of your life. Yeah. I just, I love that area and I haven't spent as much time there as I want to, but like I interviewed Brian Calvert from the high country news for the podcast. And so I spent some time there and when I used to be in the real estate business, I'd spend time there. And how did you end up, how did you get there uh, initially? What was the, so I had mentioned that I was with this um, writer, Lisa Jones, and she's now, she's now living in Longmont, but, um, uh, she, we were together and she got a job on the high country news, which is in oh, Paonia. Yeah. It's an environmental paper of record for the Rocky mountain West, you know, and, um, she got a job as a, as a staff writer and I, we were living in Boulder and I, you know, I was kayaking with all my friends here, you know, it was a cadre of really good paddlers. And I was like, I didn't want to go over to the, some podunk little town in the West. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I drove over one August. I remember I was in my truck. I was hauling a little trailer with my motorcycle on. And I was like coming through the valley, came through Somerset and the coal mines. And I'm like, where is she taking me? And then I came, the valley opened up and there were the West Elks to the South and the Uncompagre Plateau kind of stepping out in the desert to the West. And to my right on the North was Grand Mesa, you know, all the, the woods and, I was like, oh, I get it. And within a few days, you know, the guy who ran the gas station, Bobby Reedy, who's now a dear friend, um, basically put a fly rod in my hand and said, you go up to this creek and just throw that in there, see what happens. And what happened is, is that I found, you know, a passion that I, that I followed for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful there. And, it, you know, it's like a little train set. You know, you know how it is. It's like... This little hamlet, you know, in this irrigated valley surrounded by these mountains and mesas and um, all these vineyards and organic farms. And it's a it's a crazy mix, like a lot of little towns in the west of, you know, coal miners and ranchers and hippies and, you know, quality of lifers with money, you know, and it's this mix. And everybody, because it's a little town, you know, and you kind of have to, everybody sort of gets along and... uh the community. I yeah. mean, that's, we're, we're built for community. And yeah. It's just disappearing in places like that. Yeah. The, the, your neighbor might annoy you, but you're in the community. And so you have to deal with it. And I think, I mean, that's the way I grew up in my small town. And I think it's invaluable. It's so, yeah, it, it feel it does something to your, to your soul. That's uh, really feels uh, like it's feeding it. And I mean, I go down, you know, Bobby Reedy, my buddy runs this Sinclair station. I mean, he's a car carrying redneck. Yeah. And we kind of, you know, he goes, ah, Pete, you know how I am, you know, I'm, you know, we don't talk about politics much, Mm -hmm. but I'll go in the beer 30 into his, you know, into the office and sit in one of the, in the stuffed couch there, (laughs) the little office chair and, and chew the fat and just hear, you know, some of the best storytellers ever unwinding these stories about crazy characters in the mountains or hunting or whatever Mm -hmm. is awesome you know <laughs> and i don't I, you know i love denver i don't get that here no yeah i think it's being in that close proximity to people and and again i mean being able to know somebody for all their good qualities and then if you disagree on politics who cares right you know you just don't you just don't talk about it right. um real quick i want to talk about surfing because that's yeah. a love that we both share and your uh-huh. book kook i i'd lived in costa rica for a year and went from never having surfed to getting to where I can stand up and not just about drown over the course of a year. And I just love that book. So how, can you just give a talk briefly about how surfing came into your life and, and kind of what that means to you now? Cause this, I mean, you're, it's a big part. It's a big today. part of my life still. I, I just, I just love it. So it's my favorite thing to do maybe except right fish too. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh so i was i was um i just come back from i'd done the sangpo gorge you know this uh maybe the greatest whitewater expedition in history i was on the ground team covering it for outside deep gorge in tibet it was it was 37 days through the wildest place on the planet and you know there were tigers four species of leopards there was like 200 species of rhododendron that had never been described i mean this place was wild and it was demanding and people almost died every day both on the ground and in the river and it was i got home and i had lost a ton of weight and i kissed the ground you know i was like i'm alive and I was sort of sitting here. I wrote the story, and I was sitting right here on the porch. We scraped our old little brick bungalow, and the house you're in now is not the same house. Mm -hmm. But I was looking out here over the lake and watching the snow come across the mountains and thinking, what do I do now? And I didn't know. You know, Do I have to do another big thing? Do I, do I write? What do I do? My friend called me and said, hey, I just had a really rough year. You know, I was... Transfer from Chicago, being a lawyer, to Huntington Beach. And uh, I want to learn to surf. He's the guy that I, I grew up kayaking with mm -hmm. in college. And he said, come, let's come over for a week and let's learn to surf. So I was like, all right. So we went, we borrowed boards, and we paddled out at Huntington Beach at the pier. That's not what you do when you're a total <laughs> beginner. And, and I remember this guy came up, paddled up to me. He had this long blonde hair. He had a snake tattoo running down into his neck of his wetsuit. And he was really built. And he goes, you effing kook, get the F out of the water. Or I'm going to F you up. I will effing kill your ass. <laughs> and literally within half an hour, my life was threatened three times. <laughs> And you didn't completely and, bail. No, and I oh, ended up standing so up for maybe one second. Yeah. And for third day, you know, we just were so sore. And, you know, we took ibuprofen. We said, let's go up to Seal Beach. Let's try that. So there we are at dawn. You know, the wind's ruffling the palms. And we hear this crunch of gravel. And this beat-up van pulls up. This round, totally round guy like Santa Claus gets out, stretches a wetsuit over his belly. He's got this straight, long, bleach blonde hair. And... uh it says M&M Surf School on the side of the van. All these surfers come across the parking lot and hug the guy. He, like, bestows hugs. And we're like, wow, this is a little bit of a... And we hear, I love you, too. I love you, too. And I'm like, what? After Huntington Beach, you know? Or it's <laughs> like life. war zone? And I'm like, who is this guy? Well, he's the saint of Seal Beach. He, he had fallen off a telephone pole, was the lineman, and he shattered his whole right leg. He, it had fused. They said he'd never walk again. He taught himself to surf. Mm -hmm. He loved to surf before that and he said i gotta surf again so he taught and he thought if i can teach myself i can teach anyone so he taught autistic kids he taught um 90 year old women he taught you know and he was such a good teacher that celebrities started coming from la and investment bankers would fly in from chicago for a day with this guy he was like this miracle but what he did was he established this sort of like extended family around seal beach that people just loved you know this warm loving environment and he was a great teacher and he would guarantee i mean you would be up and riding within 15 minutes you know wow. on these big foam boards sure. and he had this special talent for teaching trim which other surf instructors they kind of just shove you and say get up you know but he taught the subtleties of trim which is you know scoop forward skirt back chest up chest down to be right in the right spot on the wave and have the right trim 
And uh, I got so crazy that within, you know, five days I bought my own hardboard and I went off on my own, you know, and I was just, I'm a water guy, you know, I, don't, yeah. I was a kayaker. I love violent water and getting tumbled. And mm-hmm. so this was perfect. And I couldn't even believe it. The first time I actually stood up and trimmed out on a wave and rode the face, <clears throat> I was like, I felt like I'd been hit by a bolt of lightning. You know, it was sort of like this thing. I went into to the surf shop down at the Huntington Beach, I think S&S surf shop down at the pier. And I was so, so I was looking for a new board, you know, and, and the manager came over. I was so, I was telling him about trimming out and he put his arm around me. Here I am. I'm like 46. He put his arm around me. He goes, son, if you were younger, I'd say there goes college. <laughs> And it basically did. There yeah. went, you know, half the rest of my life because I was like totally obsessed after that. And so I invited Kim, who you just met, you know, my wife, and we were dating. We hadn't known each other very long. I said, hey, I got this old van again. I got a book contract. Let's go down the coast of Mexico. We're apprentice with anybody we can and see if we can go from getting pushed, you know, on the wave at Seal Beach to riding a big hollow fast wave in like nine months. Let's see if we can do it. And we did. (laughs) I clearly remember the first time I rode on the face. Clearly. And I'll never forget it. Uh -uh. Ever. Uh -uh. And you hear all these kind of hippie talk about surfing. It's spiritual and it's, you know. But it is. I mean, it is spiritual. It's the idea of riding these waves. It's, you know, kind of the only human scale wave there is. You know, there are waves everywhere. Yeah, right. But we're on this human scale wave and riding it. And it could kill you, but you're riding it. There it's are a lot of metaphors there. A lot. And that the wave comes from, could come from New Zealand. Oh, yeah. It traveled all that way just to give itself to you and, and, and lift you up and, and finishes its, its life. On, you know. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I love, you know, it's the, for fishing. You know, I'm not a very good fisherman, but I love it. Yeah. Same. So, you know, I'm wading up the creek and, you know, all that stuff's going on. And I'm like, you know, I'm the happiest man on the planet. And if I catch a fish too... How cool is that? And I'm like, thank you, fish. And I let it go. You know, Uh we're both like probably relieved. But it's the same way for surfing. You know, I'm out there, you know, we go out just at daybreak and the sun's just a smudge over the Sierra and the river mouth. And there's, you know, a turtle popping its head up and maybe a dolphin going by and all the birds. And I just feel like, and the swell is, you know, lifting your board and lowering your board and you're looking out for the set. And I just feel like, oh my God, you know, and if I catch a wave and actually ride it, it's like total cream. And you know, it's like, nah, I'm the same you know. way. I was, that's, that was my whole deal. I was just in Costa Rica and I mean, I was so out of shape for paddling and just, yeah, it was big, but just being out there was great. I don't even remember how many waves I caught. It right. was just being there. Yeah. Um, and totally. I think the same thing about fishing and maybe that's just my excuse because I'm not a good fisherman. I'm like, I, I just like standing in the stream, but I, I really think I do. Yeah. Um, I got a few quick questions that sure. I like to ask people at the end. Yeah. Because um, it's fun to kind of compare. Yeah. This would be interesting for you because of how much you read. Um, but if you think about books about the American West, either fiction or nonfiction, are there any that come to mind that are kind of your all time favorites? That's a hard question. Blood Meridian. Mm, that's come up a few times. Yeah. 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 He's, he's amazing. I mean, I just. Have you ever met him? Uh uh-uh. uh. Yeah. He seems like he's kind of a recluse but i bet he'd be interesting guy to talk to maybe maybe not you know he might not talk much yeah you know you're probably right i'm always amazed you know when i when i a lot of times when i get interviewed it's like you know i'm a i think i'm a writer because i can't i'm not that articulate (laughs) a lot (laughs) a lot more interesting on the page but uh, i love Cormac mccarthy's work you know i think he's sort of a child of faulkner and in many ways and uh 
people think of his writing as really spare, but actually uh, he can pile it on and you know and get this rhythm going. And I think it. I think he has a real um, lyrical sense that I just love. You know, I just love the music of his language mm-hmm. and sort of the true feel of his descriptions. And uh, Blood Meridian really, really struck me. Um, yeah, I still think of a scene in that that he wrote about the Comanche horses, the hundreds and hundreds of horses coming mm-hmm. with the the handprints on the flanks. Oh yeah, and, yeah. You know, and one of the most beautiful descriptions in any book I've ever read. And then I loved, grew up loving Mark Twain, you know, and you know his his when he wrote about the West, <laughs> it was great, you know, a whole different smoke, you know, but. Uh, so I think those two guys, um, if you had to pick, and this would be tough, but pick your favorite spot in the West and don't give away any secrets, but is there a specific, could be a Creek. Uh, I know there is, is a stretch of Creek that's very special. Yeah. That's where my ashes are going, you know, um, and probably a little bit in that Bay and river mouth in Mexico. But, um, yeah, there's a Creek, you know, it's the one that Bobby Reedy put me on, you know, when I first. I was I was going to go down to the gold medal trout waters at the Forks of the Gunnison, and he said, "Man, that'll be full of fuckwits from Aspen." <laughs> um, you know, go high, and he told me where to go. And it's a stretch of mountain creek that there's hardly anyone ever there. I'm usually if I go in the evening, I'm the only one. And uh, the the road, you know it. As I wade upstream, the road climbs away from the creek, and so you get into a canyon where you're away from the road. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a little dirt road; no one's on it anyway. Mm-hmm. So you're really alone, and uh, you know the wind starts to stir. Um, you know, it, it's it's upstream in the beginning, and then as as night falls, it starts to flow and cools. It starts to come down against your cast, and that's a pain. And sometimes I'll just hear a knock and look up. And it's in a wooded canyon, and I'll look up, and there'll be a deer crossing the creek, and stop in the middle of the creek and just look at me, you know, mm-hmm. watch me fish, you know. It's like, holy cow, what could be better than this on the planet? Not much. I love it. Um, kind of final question. This is a, a tough one. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? And it could be related to writing, could be related easy. to just life. I was um, finished the Dog Stars. And I thought sort of like seventh day, you know, this is good. (laughs) I love this book. And if other people love it too, it may create a little bit of a clamor. Mm -hmm. And I've heard about second novel syndrome and Mm -hmm. sophomore effort. And I did not want that pressure. So I thought, okay, my editor says it'll, it'll be out in like nine months. So I got nine months. I better start the next one, you know? So no pressure. So I started the painter and I got into it a few weeks and I started to think about it. You know, I had said, you know, I'd say, don't think, don't think, just listen. Well, I started to think about the painter. I was thinking, okay, he kills this guy, he's beating a horse, and should the guy have a brother who's bent on vengeance? And, you know, I called my editor, Jenny, and she said, yeah, yeah, of course, you should have a brother. So I wrote the brother, and then I started thinking, well, he's got this commission to paint, you know, these portraits in Santa Fe, should he when should he go? And should the brother follow him, bent on vengeance? And, and then I was thinking, I'm thinking about it. This can't be good. I didn't think about the last one, and it worked out. So I was in Paonia, in the little coffee shop, where actually Jim Stegner, my character, meets his model. Yeah. And it's a real coffee shop. 
And it's about as big as the little living room we're sitting in I now. think I've been in that place. Yeah, yeah. You have, I'm sure yeah. you have. It's the only really yeah. place to get a lot. To. I think I have, yeah. And there's one table in the middle. You're going to talk to anyone who's in there. Mm-hmm. Guess who was in there? Paolo Bacigalupi, the great science fiction writer. Oh, really? And he lives in Paonia. And I, you know, waved to him on the street and stuff. And But I'd never really talked to him. And... So we started talking about writing the way writers do. And I started telling him about this kind of creative burden I was under. And he picked up his coffee cup. And he, he's a lot younger than me. But he said, sit down, son. I want to tell you a story. He said, I wrote one short story I completely channeled. And by the way, any, any writers coming up listening to this, you don't, it's not really channeling. You're not taking dictation from God. If anyone ever yeah. tells you that, that's bullshit. Yeah. What it is is... You're a basketball player that's taken a million shots. You've done a million drives. You've trained and trained and trained, and you get in a flow. And you know that training allows you to be in that sort of flow. And all those you're making all those decisions unconsciously mm-hmm. that you've learned to make. You know. So anyway, he said fugue state. I woke up. The story was done. I sent it in, and it won a big award. And I love it. Second story, I plotted every second. I engineered the characters to interact a certain way in every scene, total control through the whole thing. I knew the ending. I sent it in. It won a big award, and I love it. And now when I hold them both up, I look at them, and I love them both, and I can't tell the difference. And he leaned forward, and he said, your job is just to make sure it doesn't suck. (laughs) And the whole creative burden just lifted off. I thought, well, that's something I could probably handle. (laughs) And what he was saying was so marvelous. He was saying like two things. He was saying, one, you've written a hundred stories. You've got your craft. Rely on your craft. In revision, you can throw out the slow stuff or tighten up the slow stuff, you know, throw out the bad stuff, add where you need to, move stuff around. No big deal. Just make sure it's not terrible. The second thing he was saying was, which is so wonderful, is every story can have a different method. Mm -hmm. Don't sweat it. Some stories you can plot, some stories you can bootstrap it, mm-hmm. uh, just, just let it rip. And uh, it was great, and I've, had, you know, I've carried that advice with me, and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. That's great advice. That's a great way to wrap it up. Thank you very much for your time. This is, this is awesome. It's, it's been a great pleasure, and it's great to meet you. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. 
So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.